Twitter and Slack are two of technology's most popular products, but you rarely hear about the product decisions being made behind the scenes. April Underwood was involved in both as director of product at Twitter and chief product officer at Slack. What can founders learn about the strategy, frameworks, focus, and leadership that turned unknown apps into global phenomena? April joins NFX partner Pete Flint to share what she learned about world-class product development. Welcome everyone to the NFX podcast. Great to have you here. So I'm really delighted to have April Underwood join us today. So April and I first met, um, I think around 2017. So I was just transitioning off the Zillow board and April was joining the board. And, and so we've stayed in touch pretty much since then, kind of on and off. You know, I've just had really enjoyed the conversation about product and entrepreneurship and investing. And, you know, April has just had one of these amazing careers, leading product teams initially at Twitter and then Slack, where she was chief product officer. And so seeing firsthand kind of the transformation of uh, an evolution of those businesses, consumerization of the enterprise. And, you know, those are obviously category defining businesses in themselves. So our audience at NFX is um, early stage founders that I think could really benefit from your product leadership and insights. And so, you know, I think today we're going to have a fascinating conversation about product and platforms and a network and maybe touch on on a few other things at the end. So welcome, April. It's so good to have you. Uh, So April, you've led uh, product teams at both Twitter and Slack, and and both of them are category-defining businesses, I think worth north of $20 billion or more. So I guess that's sort of, you know, on the one hand, there's a lot of similarities, but uh, perhaps in your mind, like what are some of the differences being inside those organizations, scaling that, those products? What are some of the core things that, that you've seen that are different that perhaps you learned through that experience? Yeah, I mean it's uh it's an interesting question because I think uh, the reality is there there are a great many differences between the two. Um there's actually um a, a decent number of folks that worked at both Twitter and Slack and I think one of the biggest surprises for um myself and for others as we transitioned from Twitter um over to Slack was just how different they were and you know they're pretty systemic differences. Um, you know, Slack's an enterprise software company. Um, you build software, you make it as good as you can, and you charge a fair price for it. Um, you know, Twitter is, you know, is an advertising supported business. And so fundamentally, the way you think about the product, the business, um, your users, um, your customers, very, very different um, in, in that kind of model. Um, and so, you know, the business models are different. Um, the, um, you know, the types of problems that you're solving are very, very different. Um, you know, the cultures are different. Um, when you would walk into the Twitter office in 2010, and it's probably still true in 2020, I, I always described it as a trading room floor um, because it was so loud when you walked into the Twitter office. It was kind of like the service. Um, and I think oftentimes cultures and the spaces actually really reflect the product that you're building. And so Twitter, you know, you would see and hear employees talking to each other uh, across the floor. Um, You know, there's a lot of laughter. Um, There was a lot of, um, you know, there were a lot of surprises that would happen every day, things that would happen on the service that would catch us off guard and, you know, kind of be distractions in some way um, for our work. But you walked into Slack in 2015 when I decided to join and you could have heard a pin drop because it was a it's a product that's built for work. It's a product built for getting things done. And when you walked into the Slack office, not only um, was that sort of, did that permeate through the culture, this concept of of doing your best work and working hard, but also people were literally using the service. You know, we, we understood the value 
of having more of that conversation happen in Slack so that other people could benefit from the back and forth and that the next 10 or 100 employees could actually benefit from that sort of um, that historical backlog of those conversations. Um, and so there was less shouting across the floor. And so um, so there, so it's really quite different, even though communication is really at the core of both of those products. But it's amazing how communication so fundamental that it can go a lot of different directions in terms of business, culture, product experience, and more. Yeah, you, that, that's so different, the kind of B2C side and sort of the, the sort of your perception of Twitter is kind of like uh, incredible insights and incredible craziness. And then Slack is obviously a very different platform. Um, one of the sort of remarkable things about Slack is that, at least in my perception, is that, you know, enterprise software was typically aggressively sold. You know, you can imagine the kind of like enterprise salespeople that were knocking on CIO's doors and kind of saying this product, at least it, it sort of sent, felt in the early years that Slack was really organically driven and and very much a product-driven growth approach, which is probably somewhat similar to, to Twitter. Would you feel the same thing, same way? I got some curious, how did Slack kind of engineer that growth or was it, was it, it just happened? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, it kind of points to one of my you know main pieces of advice for product folks is that if you have the opportunity to work on something that sits at the intersection of a technological or even a business innovation, but also a cultural one, then like run, like don't walk. Um, and I've had the opportunity to do that twice. I mean, so when I joined Twitter in 2010, you know, it was it was still the early days for mobile. And, but the cultural shift was that, you know, this, you have to rewind back to 2010, um, Barack Obama's first uh, term in office. Um, this was a time when people were searching for ways to express them more, express themselves more freely in a public forum. And so when you came to Twitter, you know, the, you know, there was a mobile app and, you know, people were using these apps on the go and they were, you know, connecting online, sometimes even with the people that were in proximity to them um, in deeper ways. And um, and so, you know, there were, you know, a lot of these things were sort of technology driven, but there was a cultural thing that really made it um, feel like such a unique opportunity. And, you know, the kind of place that you work that when it comes up in dinner conversation, you know that that will be all you get to talk about for the rest of dinner because everybody's sort of captivated and wants to hear everything about it. I, I felt the same when I joined Slack. But with Slack, the shift was um, it was BYOD, so bring your own device. So now you've got people who are for their work using mobile devices um, or they're using, you know, they're using their own laptops or even if they're not, um, they're often they were at a point where the fragmentation of uh, tools for the workplace um, was so vast that IT departments were giving, you know, especially engineers and technical teams more freedom to choose the tools that they wanted to use. And that opened this side door for a product like Slack to come in. And, you know, it was better than anything like it before. In fact, most most of our customers, you know, used to say they didn't have anything before Slack. So it suggests that there was just nothing that sort of filled that space in their mind prior to Slack. But also there was this cultural shift that not only did employees want to have a say in how they did their work, but they also wanted to show up to work in a, like as their full selves. And so, you know, the ability to create you know, for anyone to create a channel inside your Slack team meant that people created spaces to talk about things that were orthogonal or even completely unrelated to the work. And it wasn't 
people people getting distracted. It was actually instead really cultural culture and connection moving from you know the water cooler into that digital experience inside Slack, and that was a cultural shift. So I ultimately see a connection between you know the drivers for adoption of Slack. You know, I, I see a connection to that all the way back to what I experienced at Google from 2007 to 2009. Um, you know, when I joined there, it was shocking that you could join a mailing list for just about any project in the company. Um, that the founders and oftentimes CEO would stand up in front of the entire company on Fridays and answer questions. And you can see that now. Those were the breadcrumbs for the expectations of employees at nearly every company in 2020. And Slack has has been the tool that's been necessary to enable that communication at scale. So, so you asked specifically, you know, what did we do to stoke that? I mean, I think to some degree, we tied ourselves to this secular trend that was already happening in the workplace. But certainly the way the product was designed from the very outset, the vision that Stuart um, laid out from even before I joined um, was, was so clear that it allowed us to execute extraordinarily well um, over my time there in in sort of filling in the corners of that vision, which was for Slack to be this communication platform, but also increasingly sort of like the central nervous system for your entire company and how you worked across a variety of applications. So there were a bunch of growth tactics that were used. There were, you know, we redid the new XP a million times. Um, we did a lot of things that that every company I think does in the service of growth. But I would say that vision and you know connecting to that broader cultural shift in market need was, you know, those were those were the things that really lit the fire um, that drove that adoption um, early on, and then it spread like wildfire. Yeah, and it, it's um, it's so true. They were just at the tip of the spear of those those phenomena, and and I'm curious how you know, as I kind of imagine back to the early days, it was a sort of small group of influential technical people that were kind of like driving some of this this early adoption. And there's this sort of like very special product magic that kind of appears in these platforms where, you know, this early stage, there's perhaps this tightly defined group. And then kind of the later stage, you know, Slack, it's CEOs, as well as the kind of like the summer intern who are kind of using these platforms. And then the Twitters, it's, you know, it's obviously pretty much everything in the world. How do you think about just sort of tightly defining or, or not tightly defining the kind of audience and, and going after a specific audience? And then how do you think about perhaps evolving the product sets? You don't lose the magic that the kind of early adopters had, but you enable it to scale to this huge, almost ubiquitous platforms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, um, I have experienced this sort of, um, I don't know, confidence curve um, that sort of grows early on and then wanes for a bit and then restores to like a happy balance around, you know, whoever that initial audience is. So, you know, with Twitter, it was um, it was influencers, it was journalists, et cetera. Um, you know, some of the feedback we got at times would have driven us to potentially build, you know, um, features that would be pretty relevant to more technical audiences, but maybe not to mainstream folks. And then there's, you know, you can kind of tell a lot of the same story um, with Slack. And, you know, at times I would find, you know, as myself or my team sort of lamenting like that we needed to make sure not to build things just for that audience. And so what I challenged the team to do instead was reframe that and think about why is it 
why is it fantastic that this is the first audience that we have? And like, how do we like, how do we leverage that to play to our strengths? And so with Slack, for example, you know, there was a little bit of the adage for a while, you know, we were sort of taking some heat that, you know, we were, we were mostly used by engineering teams. And it finally dawned on me that it was like, well, of course we can, of course we are, because um, we are, we are popular among engineering teams for a few structural reasons. Nobody really, you know, the finance department doesn't really question the engineering team when they say they need a tool. Engineers usually have more, you know, access on their machines and they're able to decide to use, you know, the tools that they want to use more often. They oftentimes have much bigger budgets for tools, as I alluded to as well. And by the way, they oftentimes are sort of like the tastemakers for technology selections within the entire organization. So, you know, um, we could have spent time thinking like, oh, we've got to really like pour all of our energy into figuring out how to, how to, you know, make Slack work for this other portion of the organization. But recognizing that actually getting it right for that audience was the avenue for us to spread to other, um, you know, to, to, to spread wall to wall, um, I think ultimately um, helped us um, make sure not to sort of, yeah, throw the baby out with the bathwater and maybe sort of forget our original users in service of chasing the next set of users. Um, because oftentimes those early users are the pathway to the other users. So um, I, I think that was true for both Twitter and Slack. And, uh, but it, but, you know, it's always a challenge. You don't want to box yourself in. But I think it's oftentimes a PR challenge um, in terms of how you frame it and how you tell your own story more so than, um, you know, that than it should be taken as some sort of directive that you need to react against in your product roadmap. Yeah. And, 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 and just going back to what we said at the beginning, that there seems to be this evolution from early adoption to kind of like some period of kind of, you know, challenge or kind of negativity about some of the early adopters, then a resurgence over time. Like if that happened in both these organizations, what, I guess, what was the tension in the organization and how did you overcome that tension between perhaps, you know, growth and engagement or kind of other elements of tension that happened during those perhaps formative scaling years? Yeah, well, I'd say, you know, platforms are where this oftentimes shows up um, because platform developers are oftentimes some of your most vocal, um, you know, you're sort of one of your most vocal constituencies. And if you get confused about your developer platform and think, well, I've got to serve my developers and I need to serve my customers, then, you know, I would argue that you've already made a misstep because you're seeking to serve your customers and you're seeking to bring developers along with you who have a vested interest in serving those customers as well. And when you make that mental shift, then I think that that leads you to ensure that you're building capabilities for your developers that allow them to solve the problems that you're hearing about from your customers. And, um, you know, I would say, you know, with both Twitter and Slack, we befell what I believe is sort of a, a common misstep for early platforms, which is to think that the API is a product and to expose the API and think, well, now now all this good is going to come. And the developers are happy because they have access to APIs, but they're really unhappy down the road when you realize that some of the, when, when they realize that some of the things they have spent their time and energy and money doing are not, not actually in line with your vision for where, you know, your platform is going. And so, you know, I'll, I'll call out one example with, you know, Twitter. We had built the Twitter API, you know, it had been out for a while and, you know, a thousand flowers were blooming. But when we built the tweet button, 
that was this moment where we made we sort of stepped across the threshold and we instead built you know features for developers that actually solved consumer problems very directly. And we built that consumer experience wrapped around that. And developers could plug it in in their apps or in their websites. It was a tool for them that actually made it much easier for them to offer this capability. But we were opinionated in what that consumer experience was going to be. And by the way, when we did that, we also you know, took a step further to say, well, people are asking for a tweet button, but what do they really want? They want traffic. And there's two ways that they can get traffic. They can get traffic because there are tweets with links to their website. And, um, you know, lots of those, you know, uh, links get shared on Twitter. But the other way they can do it is they can build an organic following by actually encouraging the people who are most likely to follow their branded account immediately after they've shown that they're likely to, which is when they've tweeted a link to their website. And so when we built that feature and we built it with publishers, a specific slice of sort of developers in mind, and we we built a customer experience that was relatable, that solved a real customer problem, but we actually even gave those developers even more because we got at their core need. They saw, you know, they saw usage, they saw, um, you know, their organic audience um, build through the use of that feature. Um, it gave them a ton of value. And if we had just published an API and maybe said, hey, one thing you could do with it is you could like, <laughs> you could do these 14 things. And like, you know, here's a spec for how you would do that. Um, it never would have happened consistently. It wouldn't have gotten the usage. And so, you know, um, so, so these are some of the things that I think that, you know, it's Im- imperative for you to think about, which is that at that point in 2011, in 2010, we were moving beyond an audience of both consumers and developers um, that um, that that you know really benefited from maximum control, and instead moving into an era where you know us exercising, you know, demonstrating our vision for the platform and like setting goals for what we wanted to deliver for our given customers or publishers on the on the platform, and having that reflected through our platform features um, uh, started to really, you know, frankly, in my opinion, give the platform some shape and a purpose that it lacked when it was just an API. Hi, right, yeah, it's so interesting. So so. Often- Often we meet companies that they aspire to be a platform and then they, you know, building the platform from day one, but just forget to build the product almost, which kind of drives drives the platform. And then, you know, clearly articulating what is the hierarchy of needs or, or, or what's the hierarchy of constituents? Because when you have more constituents, then there's more complexity. And if there's not precision on that kind of hierarchy, all things can kind of fall apart. I'm curious, this like it's this evolution from product to platform. I guess what are like do you, are there any other things that people get wrong about that kind of evolution to, to building a platform as opposed to just building a product? I believe you have to earn the right to be a platform. Um, I mean, a, being a platform means that you're doing one thing and you're doing it well enough for a large enough audience of people that um, you become sort of a trusted avenue by which they may choose to adopt other tools or try other things or take the next step after the native capabilities that that you offer. And so, you know, when I, um, when I think about platforms, I oftentimes sort of draw like almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And to have a really meaningful platform opportunity, you need to start from a place of doing something well, that's pretty low on the stack. And so for example, you know, Communication, um, you know, exchange of knowledge, I would assert, is the most fundamental activity for knowledge workers, period. And, you know, I mean, 
you need a device that is connected to the internet and running an operating system so that it can run your app. But after that, then you've got to talk to each other. And that's why, you know, that's why I was drawn to Slack in 2015 um, to first lead platform before I stepped up to run all of product because solving that fundamental need. And by the way, not just, you know, enabling back and forth communication, but also aggregating that um, knowledge set and building search on top of it and like creating more value for the customer out of it. Solving those core needs makes Slack a very fruitful place upon which um, um, you can start to introduce, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of snippets of experiences from other applications. And that mattered at a time, you know, really mattered you know, at that moment, because there was just this huge proliferation of workplace tools. And so, you know, we could have decided, well, why don't we just keep everybody in Slack all the time? And let's build a basically build a browser into Slack and just have you experience all of these different tools inside of Slack. Um, And I think that, you know, old school platforms got into this mode where they, you know, kind of took this territorial point of view. And I don't think we needed to, we never needed to take that approach. And the reason was because, you know, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a champagne problem, but people were already spending all of their time in Slack. So we weren't trying to coerce them to spend more time in Slack. Um, and our business model was such that we didn't, you know, we didn't make more money if you spend eight hours in Slack versus seven hours in Slack. And so, you know, there was no driver like you might see on an ad-based platform for us to have these sort of incentives that misaligned us with the developers in our platform or with our own customers. And so instead, it made Slack the right place for notifications to show up from Google Drive or from Figma or from Miro or from all of these other tools because this is where people were spending their time. And so we would, you know, we built this platform that allowed the the information um, to come into Slack that would be that was you know urgent, real time, and and um, you know the actions that could be done in a very short amount of time to be done in Slack. And um, the minute you needed to do something more sophisticated, like if you're going to go design some wireframes, for God's sakes, go to the place that's the best place in the world to do that, which is your design tool. Um, we're not trying to embrace that. We instead want to help route you off there. But we do what we do want to um, you know, enable is are those handoffs, because those handoffs between people, which are ultimately communication, um, you know, were best suited to be in the place where people could already be found. Uh, yeah, so, so interesting. Maybe maybe just changing tax a little bit. Maybe let's talk um talk a little bit about dogfights. You know, when we first kind of connected, it was a sort of post the Trulia and Zillow dogfight, and then you know, obviously Slack has major competitors with Atlassian and and Microsoft, and you know, there's this sort of adage around like focus on your customers, not your competitors, but it's a tightrope walk. You can't be sort of um too kind of myopic. I'm I'm curious as as a product leader going through those periods of sort of intense battle, what did you learn and and, and what was the, some of the guidance that you gave the team and the, in managing this, this hyper intense competition that happens in all technology companies? This question is such a, a good reminder for me that, um, that it needs to be stated explicitly that a product is not just the code. Um, you know, I always kind of remind my team that pushing code to production is not a launch. A, a launch is the point at which your target audience actually understands what you've what you have to offer and why it matters to them. And this is where I think, you know, the role of the product manager, certainly the product leader of the executive team to, you know, just continue to hone that strategy to help customers understand your vision, where you're going, um, what 
makes you different um, than that competitor. To lean into principled stances, I would say as well, which is, you know, that like, you know, I, and I do think that customers over the longer arc um, have an appreciation for teams and companies that are dedicated to solving their problems in a like in an earnest, honest, pure way. Um, and, you know, I don't mean to be Pollyanna about it, but I do think that that matters. And I think, you know, I'm saying this with Twitter on my mind too, because Twitter is, you know, I, 10 years later, I'm very, very proud of Twitter and how it's showing up um, in 2020 um, with the policy choices that it's making, with the product choices that it's making. Um, but it wasn't always clear that it wasn't always clear where we were going. Um, but I think that it's becoming more clear. And, um, and I think that, you know, the, you know, their, their market valuation would suggest that the world and, and customers are understanding that um, better and better every year. So, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I just think when it comes to dogfights, they can be very distracting. And so it puts a big onus on leaders and on product managers to help ensure that customers, as well as the employees of that company, just really stay completely um, locked in on the vision and on the things that you're trying to do extraordinarily well and a commitment to do them extraordinarily well. And I, um, I, you know, I like to believe that the companies that can uh, maintain that focus um, and that clarity of vision um, they do win by some measure. Do they win the most customers or the most revenue? Um, maybe they don't. Um, but um, but I do think that um, that that those can be sustainable businesses um, with a long life ahead of them, and that's generally what I'm always aiming for. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the um, you know the the focus um, combined often with network effects and sort of as you say, kind of like a clear clear leadership just can really make seemingly subtle differences but important ones over perhaps the incumbent the sort of you know zoom is front of mind you know it was the sort of you know <laughs> i don't know how many companies came before it but you know against these multi-product companies that were doing many things and perhaps couldn't do the one thing that was really valuable extremely well you know and obviously social networking and you know lots of twitter like companies but there's only one twitter and they just did it better than anyone else. Yeah. And I mean, um, both of those companies, that, you know, both the companies you mentioned, you know, especially in 2020, we are all reminded that it's not a strategy, but it is true that sometimes you need to be, you need to be the right company when everything changes. And, you know, um, when, when I first heard of companies starting to tell employees to go home back in March, and I think Twitter was one of the first, actually, just coincidentally. The thought on my mind was the minute that all of these Fortune 500 execs are stuck at home spending all day on video conferences rather than in the boardroom, and they discover how bad and finicky their video conferencing software is, then whatever the price tag is, they're going to be switching to Zoom. And it was just so obvious to me that like Zoom was the best product experience, but it sort of took... It did take this exogenous event, I would say, to really create a, a shift in the need. But, but man, we're, we're talking about being the right company in the right place at the right time. Um, and you know, and I and I think their success is well deserved. Yeah, yeah. And talking talking about network effects. So, you know, I at least in my experience at kind of scaling marketplaces, you know, network effects was kind of important, but it was. You know, I, I know just like in 2008, it was like, we just want to grow and we want to survive. And then coming out of that, you realize that, oh my God, this network effect 
thing is just like incredibly powerful and incredibly um, defensible for a business and, and created something very valuable. And I'm curious how much and, and network effect is, you know, we, we obviously love network effects here and effects and how, how much at sort of Twitter and Slack is it, do you think about perhaps engineering network effects or is it just that they were strategically, intentionally or otherwise baked into the core, core product at the beginning? And as a function of scale, it created these sort of highly defensible and highly valuable businesses. Is, is it something that product teams think about day in and day out? I think that it is. You know, whether they, they're naming it as such, it's the driver to teach people how to use your product so well that that they're driven to teach other people to use the product, right? I mean, you know, I'd say, you know, some of the sort of first order growth drivers, when I think about Twitter, we didn't necessarily talk about them as growth drivers, but certainly that's what they were meant to be. We might have used the word ubiquity back then. It was a decade ago. You know, there might have been other ways that we talked about it, but getting a tweet button on every major news publication and with news pubs, you know, creating a lot of the content that might both be shared on and bring people to come to Twitter in the first place was like very much a, a, a growth strategy. The work that Chloe Sladden and the media team did to convince the broadcasters to put hashtags in the bottom right hand corner of the television so that people would have a way to participate in an offline conversation, in a, I mean, in an online conversation about this on air experience that was, um, that was disconnected from the network in, uh, I mean, far more than it is now. Um, that was a growth strategy as well. You know, I mean, with Slack, you know, you think about the fact that um, some of our some of the developers on our platform started to use login with Slack because they realized that once people that if teams actually use their Slack logins, not only were they, you know, it was easier for them to get up and running because we sort of took care of auth and profile and, and some of those, you know, sort of onboarding steps for them. But also those people would by default have the Slack app installed, which was like a constant, you know, was an avenue for notifications that would actually make it so that those would turn out to be more engaged teams that would be more likely to be more sticky. So I think there are a lot of different um, tactics um, that get used in service of growth. But I think there are also table stakes for good product experiences now too. And so um, so I think, you know, and this gets a little bit to how, how you sort of think about structuring your product organization. You know, it's not, I think it's no longer the case that you sort of need to have a growth team that does all of this stuff because these are just, you know, the, like I said, these are table stakes for building an experience that is, um, you know, easy to discover, easy to enter from lots of different avenues, you know, lots of different channels effectively, and, you know, um, easy um, to quickly engage with other people through that service. And all, the, all of those things drive growth and, and network effects. So you touched there on just like building product teams. So, you know, you've been in some of the sort of greatest product teams in Silicon Valley. Like, you know, if you're giving advice to early stage founders who are looking, you know, it may just be a kind of a couple of engineers and, and themselves or something a little bit bigger. Like what what advice would you would you give um, early founders to help as they think about scaling their product teams? And, and sort of in addition to that, like what do you think makes a good product manager? to help them to be successful? Yeah, so I'll start with, so I do get asked often, you know, when should I hire my first PM? And my answer to that is actually 
pretty similar to the answer that I would give to a group product manager or a PM director deciding whether or not she should hire one more PM, um, which is, you know, not to be overly, I don't know, kind of cerebral about it, but it's like, if you are the blocker for your engineering and design team to make forward progress, then you need to hire a PM. I mean, not for one day, maybe not even for one week, but if, you know, especially as a founder, if you find, if you, if you, you know, poll your team and you regularly find that people are waiting for answers or waiting for guidance to be able to make forward progress, then you really have no choice. Your hand is forced. And I think that um, oftentimes, Times founders wait a little bit too late there. And so they lose some amount of productivity for their team because they get to a point where they're just not able, especially once you've actually got customers and you also need to respond to those customers or PR requests or whatever those things are, you find that you know, you're know you slowing your team down. There's a lot of value in a founder um, being very close to the product and close to the team um, for as long as possible. But you also, you ha- in any growth company, whether you're in zero to one or later, you always have to be thinking about how you're firing firing yourself from various aspects of your job. And this is one that I think people get quite emotional about and, you know, dare I say territorial. And so, um, or, or, you know, even have some ego tied up in, in owning this piece. And I think that that can do a team's a disservice. So I'd start by asking your team. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, no, we see that. We see that all too often. Trying transitioning from kind of product leader to company leader is just a, often a very tough thing to for founders to do. And so, you know, you you must have hired hundreds, if not more, kind of product leaders over your time. Like, are there any sort of tells that you have that, or areas of someone's sort of personality or the way they think that that you dig into to help to sort of identify really strong product talent that that um, you think might thrive in that culture? Yeah, so I I have a pretty structured way that I think about PM hiring and and it's served me well so far, so I'm happy to share it. Um, So when I'm looking to hire a product person, whether this is, you know, a PM or whether this is a VP of product, um, I take a step back and really think about um, a few different dimensions of product because you know, nobody is born a product manager. Um, people don't even really graduate college pro- product managers with a, a very, very few exceptions where maybe they have some coursework in the topic. Um, and so it is a, le- it is a learned skill, um, that, that you learn on the job. And ultimately everybody comes to product from somewhere else. You know, they, they started as an engineer and moved into it, or m- maybe they were on the business side and showed enough understanding of the customer that they made the leap over into product. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, they could have been the founder. And so they were everything. And then product is the thing that they sort of kept. And so there's a lot of different ways that people become, um, become product managers. And so the three axes that I think about are functional subject matter expertise and growth stage experience. And I, I developed this really during my time at Slack because I did, you know, you know, built out the team. And so, um, I, these were things I was thinking about every single day during my three and a half years there. And so I, 
uh, you know, functional is it starts with just what flavor of PM are we talking about here? Because if you go to one company, um, you know, maybe every PM is a CS degree and at, at another company, the PM is expected and have an MBA and be more of a business leader. It's they can be completely different. So you can't just look at paper and assume all PMs are the same. But very specifically, if you're looking to hire a product leader, because PMs sort of have this, you know, they have their, their, you know, their, their lineage of, you know, what functional background they came to came from before product, you can oftentimes find somebody who can actually help round out some holes within the team. And that may actually be needed. And so, for example, if you're hiring a product leader, but your engineering manager maybe is having some challenges scaling, you might hire a more technical um, a more technical product person because maybe they can help fill that gap. Maybe you don't have anybody running marketing. And so actually you want a product leader who can just take that on and run the ball, run with the ball for a little bit until you reach a scale where you hire somebody for it. Whatever the case, it that you know, you should think about it because you should be looking for fairly, you should be looking at PMs from fairly different companies and cultures um, based on the answer to that question. Number two is subject matter expertise. Sometimes it matters, sometimes it doesn't. You know, um, you, you know, especially in more junior roles. You can just hire generalist PMs that can they can kind of work on anything and they're hungry to learn new problems and new audiences. But as an example, at Slack, when I was hiring um, a product leader for the enterprise organization, I absolutely was looking for somebody to come into the organization who had built and sold enterprise software. And so I hired Elon Frank, who continues to this day to be um, the leader for the enterprise um, product and team at Slack. And he was a fantastic addition to the team because he was somebody that really, you know, he leveled all of us in the product organization up around what it looked like to be a product leader for large customers and how you needed to show up for them and pitch to them and and face objections from them, as well as, you know, just deep understanding of the audience and their needs. And then third is growth stage experience, which I I think, uh, you know, oftentimes gets discounted. But there are people that have worked in 20-person companies. There are people that have worked in 2,000-person companies. There's a very small audience of people who have been lucky enough to work at a company that grows along that trajectory from 20 to 2,000. And you know there will be some roles that will just require somebody who can scale and sort of morph and level up so quickly every six months where actually finding somebody with growth stage experience is more important than the subject matter or even what flavor of PM they are because they just know how to lead through that kind of change. So so this, this structure for me, all it does is it forces me to pick which one of these three axes is most important. And then I use that to guide my sourcing and look for candidates that match that profile so that I make sure that I don't make compromises on the sort of attribute of this product leader that is most important for this job. So it's always a bespoke process for me to hire a PM. Wow. Okay. That's super helpful. Thank you. That's a, that's such a great framework for kind of thinking about how to, how to hire a product managers and product leaders. I, you know, you, you touched on it earlier, just around the sort of interaction between product leader and, and perhaps found, and, and founder. And, you know, I imagine both uh, Twitter and Slack, the inventors of the product are the CEOs of the product who are deeply passionate about it, rightly so. And I'm curious, how did, how did you navigate that or any sort of tips for product leaders coming into an organization, navigating pre-existing founders with kind of deep-seated passion for for their own products any advice for people doing performing that role 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my approach um, with, um, and really, I'd say our approach with for, for me and Stuart at Slack was, um, was to have a pretty extended calibration period. And I, I think that that was really a key to success for us in that when I became VP of product about six months in, I did two things. I pulled together the CTO, the VP of engineering, the head of design, and really brought us together to start functioning as a team so that we could break ties amongst that group. We could just, you know, ensure that over time we were consistent in the vision that we were sharing with the organization and the guidance we were setting in the the role definition between our teams that we were, you know, in total lockstep around that. And so we were all, you know, three of us, except for the CTO, who is is Cal Henderson, um, the amazing um, uh, engineering co-founder of, of Slack. When the four of us came together, it really just unlocked this rhythm where we could start to get we we could start to get things done. We could build our teams. We could hold them accountable. Um, you know, we we could review products and, and establish a road mapping process and just get the engine going. And so that was really fun work. And, you know, going off and doing that in a vacuum as a product leader um, would have been one way to get it done and sort of come out of come out of the cave and be like, okay, team, here is the road mapping process. But instead, by working as a team, we all felt ownership of it. And we could also back each other up um, because you can't have every leader in the room all the time. But the other thing that we did is we had we brought Stuart along for that process. And so, you know, for for at least four quarters, and if I remember correctly, it might be might have been six, we had Stuart in the room for for all of those processes. So that that would be an opportunity for the team to hear feedback directly for him from him. It would be an opportunity for him to observe the team's progress as well as just get a read on on how the you know how you know how this organization was shaping up and give feedback to me and give feedback to um, my engineering and design peers as well. And so this calibration period, I counted it up, you know, a few years ago, it was hundreds of hours of calibration time. But I think it was absolutely critical. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of product leaders come in and they want to get the CEO out of the room as quickly as possible, or the, the CEO founder. And I think that's a failure mode. I mean, that that's that that is it's too abrupt for the organization and for the humans involved. Uh, and it also means that there's it's just inevitable that some amount of the the vision or the spark or the um the the you know the commitment to quality just the way of thinking that made the company successful will get lost in the process and that's always you're going to it is going to evolve over time that's natural it should but i think that as long for you know extending that experience um that calibration period a little bit longer than maybe feels necessary is probably the right amount um, for a leader who is stepping in to run a product organization for a strong product founder CEO for the first time. Yeah, I've, I've also I've also seen the opposite as well, where founders have like you know they they perhaps uh, come from a kind of business or engineering background and they and they hire an amazing head of product and that um, this person's run it at kind of Google or or Facebook or or you know ran massive engineering teams or product teams and and they jet and they basically transition and delegate far too quickly and they kind of create this sort of incredible turbulence in an organization because the alignment's not there so yeah in my experience 100% the same if you're going to onboard or, or as you say calibrate then it's just like your way you'll make you you're in a very strong position if you do it a little bit longer than perhaps feels comfortable as opposed to less comfortable 
I'm curious, like you talked about your kind of own evolution uh, and that evolution in the early days of Slack. I'm curious, like as you think about your own professional development in these organizations, is there any advice that you'd give your former self to like things to do or or, or not do or, or perhaps skills that you would wish you'd learned earlier or perhaps unlearned? You know, I started my career as an engineer, um, you know, back in 2002, working for Travelocity. But I had the opportunity to work with partners and product leaders and marketing and a bunch of different parts of the organization and, and, and externally right out of the gate because I was working on what was called Travelocity Partner Network, where we powered the travel tab for places like Yahoo and AOL and American Express. You know, I came to product by way of engineering, but I have throughout my career, I have um, moved into business development roles at times. I have taken product marketing teams under my wing when they needed a place to go in the organization, even though I myself, um, you know, haven't spent a lot of time officially doing product marketing. And, you know, what I have found is that um, having experience sort of stepping a little bit outside the lines of traditional product management has, for me, been incredibly uh, incredibly valuable. It's, it makes me who I am today, which is, you know, I like to think I'm somebody that looks at problems from a lot of different angles and also has an incredible amount of empathy internally about what it's going to take to do something successfully and, and what's what's required to build um, not just a successful product or a successful business on top of it, but a successful company, one that people want to be a part of for a long time and where, you know, they can they can do their best work and um, where they walk away with fond memories when they do decide to move on. And so, you know, those, um, those are things I aspire to. I think my experience sitting, you know, not only in the product management organization has been a huge asset for that. The challenge that I faced, though, is that that created a number of different times in my career. And I do think that there's probably a gender element to this as well, where I had to sort of defend that I was really a PM. And, you know, I think I ended up spending, you know, too much energy in my early career, um, kind of um, having to to constantly prove myself and just to, you know, put to put a, you know, specific example on it. When I was a Travelocity, I wanted to transition into PM and I was doing a lot of the PM work for my project, to be clear, but I was told I need an MBA. So I went and got an MBA. <laughs> And I graduated and I went to Google and I joined in program management, which I was a little, frankly, confused about. It was, I just didn't totally understand exactly where I fit within the organization until I got there um, post MBA in 2007. And I learned that I could probably never be a product manager at Google because I didn't have a CS undergrad degree. And so these goalposts sort of kept moving around for me. And, um, and I think a lot of people have this experience. And I definitely think that a lot of people of color and women have had this have these stories of sort of trying to prove that they are PMs. And so the advice I would likely have to myself is to tackle that challenge head on is to have been more you know, more confident and more um, questioning about those barriers that were put in my way. 
I think I pushed them a bit, but it's easy for that sort of feedback, I think, to to get into your head and make you think, well, maybe I'm not a PM. And fortunately, I've got a, you know, the story turned out great for me. I've gotten to, to do product at, at Twitter and Slack over the last 10 years. Um, I, I, you know, I absolutely um, characterize myself as a product uh, product leader today, but I that would be my advice to some of the folks out there um, who are earlier in their PM careers or who are founders where maybe investors are questioning whether they actually have the right chops in the room. The only way to be a PM is to build and ship product. And frankly, that's accessible to anybody. That's super helpful. And, and you mentioned diversity and gender. Is there any, you know, and I've just seen kind of firsthand how sort of differences of opinion and perspective and background lead to just far better outcomes, you know, particularly on the product side and, and across the board. Is there any advice you give kind of early stage teams as they're thinking about this, about sort of things that they should be doing that they may not be doing? I mean, I think focus on diversity as early as possible. I mean, um, some of the work that we that I've done with my um, angel investing group, Hashtag Angels, is focused on actually putting real measurement around um, the equality or lack thereof in the industry as it relates to equity compensation. And so, you know, we initiated, uh, we wrote a blog post in 2017 called The Gap Table. Um, it was a play on the cap table, um, which of course is just a list of shareholders in a given company. And what we highlighted is that there's a lot of talk in the industry about um, about uh, equality and, and equity, but it's all focused on salary. And like, you know, none of the stories that you hear about people making it big in Silicon Valley have anything to do with salary. Um, they're all focused on, it's all about the equity. And of course, oftentimes equity is worth zero, but when it's worth something, um, it, it, it can be quite big and it can go on to um, position a person to have, make different choices in their career, to take bigger risks, to start companies, to invest in other companies that may go on to be successful, to back politicians and philanthropic causes that are near and dear to them. And so, you know, this stuff really matters. And so, you know, so I, you know, I, I mentioned that in the context of, of team building, the people that see outsized equity outcomes are the founders, are the investors, are the executives, and are the very early employees, which often skew um, quite technical uh, in software companies um, and or in technology companies in general. And so, all the more reason that at the point at which you start issuing equity, it's imperative that you are already thinking about diversity because, uh, you know, that decision that you delay by six or 12 or 24 months in the best scenarios can be orders of magnitude indifference um, for those employees in terms of their outcomes. And money is nice, but what it can do and what it can, you know, the downstream effect of that to the, that in the industry is incredibly important. And so that's the advice that we, Hashtag Angels, are always giving to our founders is to is to start early. There are lots of different organizations out there today, especially um, that I think we've all become more aware of in the last few weeks on Twitter um, that help you find amazing Black designers, amazing Black engineers, founders that you can back, um, Latinx founders. I mean, I, I mean, it, it's all out there. There's no excuse to not find the talent because uh, it's never been easier than before to to find talent that is going to help you have that diversity on your team and your product's going to benefit from it. Your customers will, and certainly those employees will. Yeah, so true. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you've been very successful and obviously a, a huge amount of kind of personal uh, ability and drive and commitment, but also, you know, you 
been surrounded and I'm sure kind of mentored and had advice from a number of amazing people. Throughout your career, I'm curious, are the people that you've been have had a significant impact on your kind of own personal growth uh, throughout the years that you, you'd want to highlight? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'll call out a, a couple of folks. Um, one is Dick Costolo, who um, was the CEO at Twitter. We first met when he had sold his company FeedBurner to Google back in 2007, right around the same time I joined. And so I was just, you know, I, you know, he, he was really bright. Um, he was also a hoot, and um, he was working on some business things that um, were really relevant to some of the more operational work that I was doing as a program manager. So I really wanted to sort of connect the work that I was doing for his, for his business strategy. Um, to sort of close the loop um, with this otherwise sort of cost center type work that I was doing around content acquisition. And so I um, so got to know him, you know, had the opportunity to work for him for five years at Twitter. And near the end of those five years, um, even though we had a great relationship, always talked in the hall, I realized that I was a little frustrated with him because I wanted him, I wanted sponsorship. I wanted him to spend time with me and help me be successful, not just to sort of react to me if I I sort of came to something with him. And so I approached him about it and um and he and he was open to it and he took the feedback that there was an opportunity for him to do more especially for women in the organization and I think you know since that time has very much done that for for me but for for others from the X Twitter network. And you know it's frankly inspired me to think about the same thing that I can do for people of color in the organizations with whom I've worked. And so I'm just starting to learn my muscles as a sponsor and being on the other side of the table. Um, but it's absolutely something I want to do. And sometimes you need to be sort of called into service um, to do it. And when you are, you got to answer that call. And, and that was what Dick did for me. Uh, you know, some of the other uh, people that I've been really grateful to, um, to, you know, call what I almost call friend tours, you know, all of my hashtag, hashtag angels are women with whom I have worked, with whom I have angel invested. You know, we've backed over 120 companies together, but they're also the people that I call because they have their own areas of expertise and their own board experience or um, executive experience that they can lend me. And so maintaining that tight network, um, you know, now for five years and in, in five years going on, you know, six of having those people that I can, I can call at any time it is a really important network for me. And then finally, I'll say, you know, working for Stuart Butterfield for three and a half years, um, you know, I learned more about product and about, um, you know, a care for the craft and the, you know, in, and just being incredibly thoughtful about every decision you make and how that impacts the people on the other side of the screen using your product, you know, learn more in the three and a half years that I worked with him than the rest of my career combined on those fronts. And so, you know, I've been really very, very lucky um, to get to work with some great folks along the way and to get to develop personal relationships with them that have directly contributed to my success and my growth. And so, I'm always trying to pay that forward um, with with the folks that are just, you know, coming up behind me. Yeah, it's such an amazing group of people. And I love the word friend tools. <laughs> it's definitely a definitely a, if you can find mentors or friends and find that balance, it's just wonderful. And I've certainly seen that myself. So I just want to touch on a moment about how you see the evolution of 
enterprise software and sort of enterprise software is kind of the wrong word because it's like if you think of this sort of stodgy dos like environment of kind of badly designed experiences and we've seen this evolution of the consumerization of of enterprise and and i I know you've touched on the supporter movement here i guess what do you what do you like as from your vantage point what do you see is going on on perhaps the the kind of business side of software how that's evolving and and how do you think it's perhaps different or or very similar to what's going on the consumer side of things yeah, well, I'd say it's it, we're just getting started. Um, you know, the work that we did at Slack over the last three and a half, you know, over over my time there, but that the, that the company's been doing for the last five years, um, uh, you know, really a- addresses you know a, a large and growing market, and yet there are still so many different tasks and you know significant work streams and audiences that still are untouched by um, sort of this movement. And so you know when we were building Slack, um, you know it just made sense that of course the app that you have to use to communicate with anybody should be intuitive and should be as easy to use as the consumer messaging experiences you have. In fact, it should probably be better because you are likely to talk to your colleagues um, in a digital fashion more than you talk to anybody else. So it should, um, you know, it should just sing and it should just, you know, be an an effortless experience to communicate and to find information in inside Slack. And so, you know, we were always striving for that, you know, how do we just build the very, very best experience that we possibly can? This is too important to get wrong. Like it is rude (laughs) to not get this right. But I would say that, um, you know, when I think about, you know, a completely different vertical, so you get outside of knowledge workers and you think about agriculture, uh, you know, I one of the companies that I backed recently is called Ganaz. And the founder is building and her team are building software for um, for for farm workers. You know, a lot of them still use punch cards to punch in and punch out. They need to track. Uh, they need to track their hours. They need to get paid. They need to be trained. Um, they need to know what the latest restrictions are around COVID. They need to know how to use new materials that maybe um, can make a farming proce- process less um, detrimental to the environment. There's so much opportunity for evolution in agriculture. But you know, it's it's just such early days in digitizing that industry. And, you know, when I found this company and got to know the founder and was just so impressed by what she was doing, it just reminded me that, like, there's still so many cards to sort of turn over um, with this consumerization. And even, I would say, just basic digitization. There are still a lot of people that go to work every day and don't have tools to use um, for their daily activities that are, um, you know, even on the same um you know, playing field as the apps that we have for consumer use. So I think there's a ton of oppor- opportunity there. And I think all of that evolution is absolutely inevitable. So those are bets that I like to take as an angel investor. Yeah, and I'm sure and it's clearly accelerating right now as as everything is going digital and more remote than um, I mean, the sort of trends have been going for a while. They've just been, you know, ticked up a few years, it seems so that there were interesting opportunities six months ago. And I think they're way more interesting opportunities today. I think that's true. I mean, the the area that I've been just absolutely captivated by is just watching the local businesses here in my community of San Anselmo, California, undergo what is effectively a pivot overnight. I mean, these are 
offline businesses that rely on foot traffic and they have demonstrated creativity and, um, you know, a sense of urgency and like all the things that we look for out of Silicon Valley founders to figure out how they can find customers, sell their products, fulfill orders and do all of that, um, you know, under duress um, and uh, under a bunch of different constraints because of shelter in place. And, and they're doing it. And so I've been, you know, incredibly focused on that part of the market, a part of the market where there, there are tools like Shopify and Square and Squarespace. But I think that, you know, ultimately, I think there's a lot of untapped opportunity for how these businesses work, how they work together, how they engage in their communities. And so this is, you know, this is something that I just can't stop thinking about and um, is an area that I expect to see, um, you know, a lot of evolution in the coming years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we and you've talked to previously about um, how to make enterprise software more delightful. I'm curious if there are any learned like properties of user light that you can break down, or when you say delightful, what, how how do you manifest that in a product organization? It's it's a great question. It's it almost it it almost ends up resolving to you know can you teach taste? Um, and um, I would say I haven't answered that question for myself yet. I think you can try. Um, you can certainly, um, you can seek to establish principles, uh, you know, product principles that you use. You can, um, um, you know, use, um, you know, storytelling, um, as product leaders and as executives in the way that you give feedback to teams to help them sort of trace back their steps and potentially find another path forward when they, when they, when they build something that has an absence of delight, (laughs) But, you know, but I'll be honest, I mean, this is where um, I think as a product leader, you have to get smart about how you put your talent to use. And that talent includes the individual, you know, the the PMs and the designers that maybe have the, you know, that have just demonstrated the greatest ability to to take something beyond just meeting a set of needs, but actually like going further to actually, you know, meet unmet, uh, you know, un, unstated needs or even um, start to stoke the idea that there are things that people want out of the experience that they they didn't even originally come there for. And so, you know, there, um, you know, I don't, I don't expect that every single PM or designer within an organization is always going to hit it, um, you know, and, and find that moment of delight 100% of the time. I think it's both unrealistic as well as I think it's personal to an organization and to a brand. But what you can do is you can make sure to match the right people to the parts of the product where it matters most. And you can also engage the, the, whether it's founders or sort of just the almost like product culture keepers within the organization to have um, some amount of editorial review um, to help bring some consistency. So I, you know, I'd love to figure out, you know, some magic trick to be able to make it so that everyone in an organization has an equivalent level of being able to deliver this. But I actually think for product leaders, that's the wrong way to think about it, because I think this is a human capital problem. And it's more how do you structure processes in a way that actually ensure the best outcomes for the team as a whole, rather than trying to sort of like implant a chip in every single person and get the exact same results every time. April, I, you know, this was a fascinating conversation. Um, so many terrific insights for our audience. So I want to thank you once again um, for sharing with us today and um, looking forward to hopefully seeing you in person before too long. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs>